Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tree Actions, the Human Forestry Podcast. And all the way from the left coast, or you consider it the best coast, or the wet coast, or the west coast. But not only that, from Vancouver Island, joining us today is Ryan Seneschal. Did I pronounce that right, Ryan? He did. Perfect. Perfect. Um, and of course, with us always is always is uh, Tony, in the, uh, who heads up our is our technical support team, but uh, also positive contributor to the podcast. <laughs> no, I just said I I have the privileges. I edit out all the stupid things I say, but leave Dwayne's in. That's my job. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> uh, we laugh because we know it is true. So um, Very true. Well, Ryan, welcome to Tree Actions, and I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. I've been thinking about, you know, when how we first met and so on, and we, maybe we can get to some of that. But we always ask everyone how they found themselves in this human forest, how how your journey in the human forest began, and whether it was professionally or or maybe even it, for some people it began much before they even started working with in the tree care industry some of the people began when they were kids in trees so what how what uh talk to us a little bit or tell us about how you got started in the human forest to where your journey began where your seed germinated <laughs> sure well thanks for having me first of all uh i guess my journey started uh as as a second career i i wasn't born knowing i wanted to climb trees i I actually uh, lived an interesting career before I found my way into arboriculture and and since urban forestry. And that was through uh, organizing events um, and as a uh, as an athlete of sorts, I was uh, pretty heavy into mountain bike trials and and BMX and uh, yeah, I was uh, I was sponsored for. Um, for a full setup, basically, I was um, on payroll uh, doing events. I was traveling a good chunk of the year, six to eight months a year, doing ramp shows uh, across Canada and the U.S. Uh, did a couple of trips overseas as well, and I was also, as I said, I was an organizer as well. So I was doing promoting for my own travels, uh, booking shows all over. Uh, also working through another promoter and agent, um, but also doing like video work and and photo stuff for uh, for magazines, and, and then organizing competitions, uh, which was one of the connections that led me into the work I do now, um, right. in in tree climbing competitions. But that that started through the bike side, uh, so I was doing uh, trials events and really working on supporting the community of trials uh right from when i was 14 years old i think i think i did my first event when i was 14 you know getting people together and supporting and you know whatever they could contribute uh i had one friend whose dad owned a trucking company so you know we we were able to pick different sites all over the province uh in ontario i should say i'm originally from bracebridge ontario uh, a couple hours north of toronto uh, but he owned a trucking company and so we're like hey can you help us get stuff here and that's how it all started is is getting community together and and everybody's you know whatever they can contribute individually um 
anyway, that's, that's a long story. I, I was, uh, riding professionally from basically 15 till I was 24. Um, and this is where it gets a little weird, uh, spicy if you want. Uh, when I was about 24, I, I was, uh, living illegally in the U S, um, overstayed my work visa, <laughs> overstayed my work visa and, uh, was, was, uh, staying with a friend and doing like cash work and didn't really have any plan other than like the way the, the, the pro riding scene works is it's very seasonal. So things dry up for the winter months. Right. Uh, yeah. so I was getting myself through the winter pretty much, uh, riding out my savings from the summer ended up going back to Toronto to do an event in the winter months. Um, did wow. the event, had a great time, came back to the border and got flagged for um, like a secondary interview, came in and the border guard just basically completely called my bluff. He's like, provide me some proof of uh, employment in Canada and, and we're happy to let you through. I'm like, well, do people just, you know, carry a pay stub around and like just anything. But, but uh, that uh, effectively was an abrupt ending to everything. Like I, all my stuff was in, uh, you know, outside of Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and yeah, had to start from scratch. Basically, I was on a friend's couch that night in London, Ontario. Um, just like, uh, yeah, everything's upside down. So a day later, I'm I'm on. I'd been living independent since I was 16 in Toronto, um, and you know the following day, I'm on uh, my mom's couch, and um, yeah, it was it was kind of like I would say that the the riding thing is really volatile. Like it's peaks and valleys. It's inconsistent work. It's probably you know has some similarities to the way people go about um, subcontracting and tree work to some extent. Um, so a lot of invested effort. And, uh, but it, it just got to be really exhausting and stressful and wasn't super fun, to be honest, uh, any any longer. It, was, it had become work. So I was faced right. with this dilemma where everything came to an immediate halt, um, didn't have a lot of money, uh, and... Uh, my dad actually said somebody uh, had come into his place of work and um, said they were looking for people like right away. Uh, and that was at a golf course in Muskoka. And uh, okay. that was that was my connection to trees. I started in, in golf and they sent me to chainsaw training right away. In Ontario, you have to have a chainsaw operator certificate. And then I was like, chainsaws are awesome. Like <laughs> ended up doing, working through the winter months at the golf course, doing selective clearing. And we were actually supporting a, a contract crew of arborists who would come through and we'd, you know, we'd do the ground felling, but they would do the climbing work. And I was like, holy smokes, like you can climb trees as a career. That's ridiculous. And, and, uh, <laughs> and for this time, this was about, this was 2004, I would say, uh, this contractor that was doing the, the climbing work for the golf course, uh, the two climbers were both women, which at that time in, in like Muskoka, that was pretty unusual, I would say for the, oh, yeah. you know, the dominant male, white male, uh, uh makeup, which persists in industry, mm -hmm. but, but for that time it was pretty unusual. 
and actually there was one further connection where uh, my my coworker who was probably parallel to my position his partner was an arborist who had gone through Fleming College um, and I was pretty immersed into the arb world even though I wasn't directly connected into it but I like I felt a sense of community within it and was really drawn to it. So I had a pretty quick trajectory from about 2004 working in golf to the point where I was full-time um, climbing trees um, and started with a company in Fort Erie, Ontario, just kind of put my profile on uh, Arborist site. Mm-hmm. This is going back. I mean, a lot of people, this is just a website that had a forum and I put a profile on it saying I wanted to get into climbing and, and this company and this family run business in Fort Erie, uh, gave me a shake and it was, it was a small outfit. It was actually two separate companies, but they were family and often worked together on stuff. But, um, that was, uh, Brian and Katrina Van Osh, um, and, uh, and Darren Karens, and they were they were all like through the Fleming program, so had a really strong foundation. I, I was so lucky right from the get go. Like with the golf course, they were very safety oriented. They wanted you training. I end up in this second spot uh, where I'm finally doing full time, like getting in climbing. They want me to go to college. They're all college graduates themselves, um, and working. Um, under the the leadership of uh, uh, women in the process too, so I had a, a a real I landed on my feet. In other words, coming out of a bad situation with bikes. Unfortunately, I still have a good connection with bikes, but now it's it's purely for fun. Well, that's a very interesting. I, I wasn't. I obviously I've, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but I've always known since I've known you that you've had this connection with bikes, which I think is really cool, by the way, and. And I've, uh, you know, watched you grow into helping with the BC Opens and, and, and you know, growing it into even something independent now. And, we can, you know, it. I have no doubt, and I've always thought, well, you know, his experience in the bike world and, and just the way you do things, the way, you know, the workshops you've organized, you know, I even write as recent as the Soak and Loam workshop where I've always been impressed how you garner from the exit experience that that very few people have and that you can cross over you know a bmx biking i think it's bmx or motor i I don't want to say the wrong thing but how you can translate the learnings from that into organizing events and that you still do that and bring that to the artist world because they're always they're unique you know you're unique in how you do that and i've always thought that's pretty cool um what did you uh you know your you were quickly, you know, enchanted by tree climbing. What was the, what was your first recollection of like rope and hitch and, and harness or saddle? What, what did you climb on in your, in the beginning? Uh, my first harness was uh Petzl Navajo. Um, wow. Uh, first rope, true blue, Samson. Um, true yeah, blue. Split wow. tail, Blake's hitch. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, so split to, was, it, was the place that, did you use, uh, did you use true blue for that as well? Uh, oh, that's, that's a good question. I can't remember. I feel like it was either a 16 strand or a solid braid, 
but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was I was on the Blake's Hitch like way too long. <laughs> was, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> the, the my my mentors, my early mentors, were uh, not on I and I's at that stage, so I, I didn't really have exposure of somebody that was was right. on a uh, yeah on an I and I tail. But uh, eventually, yeah. I think the first competition I went to, uh, a family friend of theirs was, I had mentioned I'm climbing out at Blake's, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, man. Like, let's let's get that resolved. <laughs> that was the turning point. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, I mean, it, it, uh, we've had, you know, we've had quite a few guests on now, and uh, most of them, you know, that was the only choice they had. You know, you're, you're, I think one of our first guests where you're in a stage where you, you it's possible you could have, but you're still early enough that it's certainly Blake Sitch was, was very well used at that point. I mean, it still is. Let's face it. It's still probably the workhorse hitch out there. If you go to the, you know, well over half of the working climbers, I think probably still use a Blake's, believe it or not. Um, but uh, certainly not at the competitions and so on, of course. But uh, um you know, when you when you when you think back to your decision to to even try climbing, like what was it that drew you to it in the first place? Like, was it a conversation? Was it just watching guys aloft? And then, how would you describe your? You know, whenever you think you want to do something, you do it, and then you actually do it and realize, holy shit, this is it, man! Like, did, how would that process go for you? I think the connection deep down is, is like one of, of terrain and movement, like in, in BMX and mountain bike trials is it, that's what it's all about. You just look at the environment and think of like, think creatively of the possibilities of movement in that space. Um, and wow. also seeing how other people are working with it and, uh, and the community part of it too. Like I, I recognized with that crew, um, with the two women that did all the climbing at the golf course, they were just like, they had this dynamic about them that was unfamiliar uh, from any other workplace I'd been in, but it was very similar to the types of relationships I would have when I was working in bikes. Uh, like people like doing it. It's fun. Um, and I could see that right away. And it was like the combination of all those things that, really made it feel familiar and comfortable to me. Uh, initially, it wasn't super accessible to me, I would say. Like, I, I could have been climbing much sooner, but didn't realize there was a pathway necessarily. Like, I was fairly comfortable in the golf course thing. Like, I'm not a golfer. Like, I'm not drawn to golf. It was more um, working outdoors and kind of getting a broad range of right. skills, um, that, that was more interesting to me, but like, I could have been doing tree work, uh, full time, like right away, like right from the time I took that chainsaw operator certificate course, I was like, this is, this is fun. And, uh, I really like the environment and the people. Interesting. So you really were transplanted, if you will, you know, you, you found yourself in the BMX forest. And, you know, through a series of circumstances, you know, you, you, you ended up having to, you know, you were uprooted abruptly and had to find new soil and you found it, you found connections and it wasn't just, you know, like I, you're, it, I really like the way you articulated that the, the something that they had, like the, 
it was a spirit or um you know a humanity connection not just a fun or i want to you know climb a tree you know because it looks cool but you actually liked what they had sort of uh energetically and again that's that's not everywhere out there i was fortunate to see the the people i did mm. early on um where that was allowed really because <laughs> uh it, it can be quite hostile and like time and place too but they they just made it seem so fun and and like a place i could imagine working um 40 hours a week and and not not even blinking an eye like and and it seemed like the learning curve too was a bit of a a, a connection that was similar to bmx where it's just you can see it's expansive and you can take it off in many different directions but it's like this never-ending learning curve of growth uh, both in in skills and knowledge and that's attractive wow. to me personally yeah yeah i mean that is so cool i never thought of that but like how you're you, you it makes perfect sense now listening to you say it but how you know you look at a a track or a you know a, a piece of land that you're going to ride and the possibility now you you with your background you look at a climb like that like you look at a tree and your route or the way you're going to move in it is like the way you would ride your bike on a course. Yeah, it's there are elements within tree climbing that are that are much more utilitarian I would say like there's there's the points of getting yourself established and the commute uh to your anchor point <laughs> to the point where you're doing your work uh but then moments will appear where it's like oh here's a here's a, a creative opportunity. You see a line unfold, like when, when everything's lined up, whereas I think BMX is, is you're constantly in that space. Uh, right, but still right, those, right. those moments are just so satisfying, right? It's, it's not something yeah. that can be obtained in most other workplaces. Um, if, if you want to take it, I mean, you know, not everybody's into that, but for me, it, it, uh, scratches an itch. Yeah, that is really cool. And it's, you know, you're absolutely right. There's, you know, what do you think about, is that something that, that stays with people? Like, I still feel that way, and I've been doing this a long time. And, you know, and I don't have to be necessarily climbing. I There could be times when I'm teaching or when I'm felling or when I'm, you know, whatever that work activity I'm doing, but there'll be, you know, like you say, a line will appear. and. Uh, you know, a, a tact or a root or, a, you know, even sometimes it's just a moment to take in. It might be a, a scene or just a comment and to let it sink in, you know, to let it percolate. Um, is that like, is that something that you think you have because of your chosen profession in the trees or, or where, how is it that one can achieve that or experience that lifelong? Like what, and do you, it sounds to me like you 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 tapped into that and you still are. Yeah, I, I think when you're embedded in a community that that is like culturally embedded in, it's it sustains itself. Um, when huh. when you have less connection to that community, it requires you investing energy uh, to make space for it. 
Uh, and the example I would draw on is in writing BMX now as a, as a parent um, with a young daughter uh, and work duties. And, and my, my career has kind of changed form a little bit. And it, it can be difficult to make space for fun. Uh, and the same in right. climbing, like you can get, you can get bogged down in, in the climbing workflow, uh, and, and lose touch of that with maybe frustrations around, uh, retention of staff, that sort of thing. We're just carrying a lot of mental load. You have to, you have to make spit, you have to want it. Uh, and the returns are immediate, but like it's easier said than done, I guess. Uh, but where where you do make space uh, for that fun to occur, even if it's just a, a glimpse, even if it's just like, oh, I see like the perfect like drop swing land situation that's just going to um, make my day here, uh, where you make that space, it, <laughs> it's, uh, it's an immediate stress relief. It's a therapy, right? And, and you can build on that little by little. Uh, so, so now like riding BMX, it's a similar situation. Like the bike sits out there, there's long periods of time where I can't get at it. Um, uh, and potential dangers in leaving it for too long and, and jumping back on a little bit out of shape, which I learned uh, the hard way in 2021. Um, but, but, you know, making that space and, and setting some limits on yourself, you can gradually get back into it and, and it can contribute a lot of richness into your life in doing so. Yes, I agree. And I, I like the way you put that, uh, you know, that you have to work at it or put energy into it. It, 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 uh, like so many things, um, you know, you get what you give kind of thing, or, uh, it's very true. Um, how is that showing up for you? How how do you how do you do that? Like how do you integrate that? Is it just do you does it happen organically, or can you share that something that you do specifically to keep that energy flowing? And I know it's personal, but I, I'm I'm curious. You're I'm finding very interesting. I would approach it, uh, I think probably a couple different ways. Like one, one thing I believe in strongly is, uh, when, when opportunities arise, uh, you, you, you take those opportunities. So if an old friend is coming to town or if I'm going to a place where, uh, an old riding friend is, uh, or climbing friends, I, mm -hmm. you know, even though it's like over programming myself, in some cases, often, it's, right, right. that is making the opportunities or at least like showing up to the opportunities, the, right. the, the climbing or the, the socializing or the riding is going to happen. I've always liked climbing and riding together more than alone. Uh, so I, tr wow. I really try and uh, foster the opportunities. And that's one of my selfish reasons for, for organizing BCTCC, the BC tree climbing championships, um, up until 2018. And then doing these arborist workshop events is, is getting that community yeah. together. And when they're all in the same room, the organic, 
um, transfer of opportunities and exchanges occurs. But like there needs to be that that venue and that day where people can be together really some people are are totally stoked to go out and ride alone and and climb alone that's just not me like it's it's more i thrive in, in those like social connections but also the ability to to do the thing we love in the process um so that's it does take energy invested in to set up the play date <laughs> and then and then it happens um, you know, uh, I've been at events that you've run and I haven't been to an event recently, but you're, you, I know you're organizing basically independent arborist type, uh, days and what, what, uh, what is your, um, uh, crit- uh, how do you go about, you know, coming up with the next idea for the next Ryan Arbor day, the re- the next the next Stoke and Loam or whatever, you know, I know you give, you know, and that's not, we aren't, you're not going to get away without talking about Stoke and Loam a little bit, but how do you, what's next and how do you come up with what you're going to do? What's your, what's your inspiration? So I've been following the same recipe that I've used since like I was 14 years old when I started producing events and I have to credit cool. my, my mentors in organizing those events as, as well. Uh, just for how they approach things creatively and and uh, supported my earlier years where I didn't have the budgets or, or the means or the knowledge to do these things, just the the enthusiasm. Uh, but but really, it's just taking um, an analytic view of the proceedings of the event, allowing yourself the space to stand back and watch how it unfolds, how people are, you know, and through conversations with participants, seeing uh, without directly asking, like, what do you like? What do you dislike? It's not like that, uh, that survey approach, but it's just getting a sense of what's working and what's not working and, and writing it down, uh, <laughs> cause time's going to go by between yeah. the next events. But like also after that event, like hearing, you'll hear sort of secondhand, uh, People will still be talking about it in some capacity or, or through a friend, they'll, they'll bring something up that really stuck with them and like, hang on to that. I, I don't like doing the same thing over and over again. It's, it's more like yeah. take what worked really well, use that as the foundation and then take it into some new creative, um, uh, space or, or idea and, and full credit like a lot of people have been involved in sharing their thoughts on that it's not like i'm not the brain trust i'm i am committed to throw down all the pieces to make it happen in in most of these events there have been others the others involved creatively that have helped make it magic um and it's kind of uh you know, people are here for a, a brief time contributing in that capacity, but just really leaning into their desire to share and be creative. And and I can provide the resources to actually bring it into physical being. Um, so that that's what I bring to you the table. I, I love the community, just that everybody has different uh, contributions. And, and, and I guess I'm just an organizer and... Uh, 
uh, and can actually, I have the connections and the, the knowledge and the, the will to just bring these into physical being. You know, I, I can't, I can't, I've been trying to, to figure out where, whether you're the, the tree, the, the root, the fungus or the soil, or maybe a combination of all of it. But I mean, it, it, when you're talking about how you do this, it just reminds me so much of this analogy that I, I'm using, you know, called the human forest, because I mean, literally that's what you're connecting. You're building a human forest and the connections that everyone has to to make the organism what it is, you know, like, the, the, the analogies are just endless in, in what you're saying, you know, and, you know, and I, I just do want to say about, about Soak and Loam in particular, which was the most recent event that you had. Um, when I first saw it, when I first saw, I think it was an Instagram post or something where I saw the name, I was like, what? And, and I, I couldn't help but smile. I'm thinking, there he goes again. Leave it to Seneschal to pull out a Soak and Loam. Like every, you got to go just to find out what the heck, it means right and uh and i know i've asked you uh since what how you came up or what what it meant and and i think that's probably from what i gathered from your answer the most it even makes it more beautiful because it doesn't sound like there was really that much to it it was just a cool sounding name potentially which it really is and, you know and, and it it was an event it came and it went but there's those that remember it and it just makes the next one you're going to do that much more interesting to wait to see i don't know how you're going to top that name but uh what what I, I i'm sure i'm not the only one and maybe it's a private joke or a private thing but like how do you do that come up with these cool names and stuff like that is really neat Well, we we approach every project. Uh, we being the the creative uh, elements, uh, other other members of the community that jump in and jump out. Uh, in the case of Soak and Loam, uh, Ryan Murphy is a, a climber uh, based in the Cumberland area, uh, sort of near me on Vancouver Island. Um, I think him and I were just bouncing ideas about. We we knew we wanted to do something educationally um, and, and trying to find a format that worked for most people. I'm all about accessibility and, and opening up opportunities mm -hmm. for early career ARBs. Uh, but also, mm -hmm. I, I think people that traditionally might not attend uh, the other offerings that happen to come through our area. So we were, we were approaching this, that was our key priority. It's like accessibility for worker level to actually get uh, exposure to the community, first of all, but also get some education out of it. Um, that that was the starting point, and then we're like, okay, we need a name. So this is the process, and and that one, yeah. like th the joke with soak and loam is uh, the first rule of soak and loam is don't talk about soak and loam. Uh, but but <laughs> it, it, for some reason, everybody is is quite taken by it, and I can I can promise you that it, it just came from a session where I think Ryan and I were hanging out and I it just fell off of my tongue. I don't know why. It happened. Hey, both, of us chuckled. both of us were tickled yeah. with it. We're like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Sometimes that's the best way. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of times it's don't, the best way for things to occur. And, and, and that's what he, like I, when it's, it's when you, you know, the first time I asked you about it, 
you you is the same answer and it and it's what makes it even better it, it's just hey man it just kind of kind of happened and that that's okay and it's totally cool and um you know i, I hope you can always remember that and you I mean your your whole career has been an example of that already but um it's really cool you know not everybody has the uh comfortability or maybe the willingness i think maybe the, i don't know what the word is but not everyone is has the freedom to to be that spontaneous or um you know to, to just let something be what it is for the sake of a, of the name and that it has just a good cadence to it even like not everyone has has that what what do you think about that do you, do you think that like what is it about and it seems to be more common in the arborists you know in the art world that we're able to function in that i don't know tony what's the word i'm looking for here? esoteric or uh nebulous the field of existence or <laughs> I might get you just to, to repeat the question, um, like as far as context. Um, I'm not sure if I totally follow and I want to get this one. Yeah, well, thank you, and I appreciate that. I, 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 I wish I could be more concise, but I tend to draw on, draw on, drone on. Um, what is it, like, um, how is it that some of us, because I, I think I'm kind of like that, can, are okay, you know, you, you come up with a name for an event. And it's it's quite spontaneous. It doesn't really have a meaning or an explanation per se, but yet it draws great. And that you're okay with moving forward with that. Like there's people that wouldn't be okay with, they, they need more structured parameters in order to move forward with something. You know, not trusting a process, I guess. And, and what is it that allows you, what do you think makes you comfortable and capable of doing that and that you actually enjoy about it? I would say having having a, a clear view of what is important in whatever I'm whatever project I'm involved in and like what is most important with this and uh, like the name of the event hasn't like it's never hurt us I would say in in different names I've used in events over the years but one thing I will say I have had success for is like just being weird with names um, and, and unexpected. And uh, like going back into the, the writing days, like that's that's all we did. And that like made you really stand out in the landscape, I guess. So I guess it is somewhat important. Ah. But but people remember the names and, I, and that stuck with me. So BC Tree Climbing Championship, that was named before it came over uh, – uh, to my organizing, of course, but 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 we also sort of uh, attach like an, a name of that year's event uh, from the years followed, and that I believe has stuck with the the new organizers. They've been like BC, like uh, one year we did like Coquitlam Conifer Classic, um, and, and we just have fun with it. Uh, but it makes it stand yeah. out. It makes it unique. It makes it memorable. So. Don't don't lose 100%. sleep over it, but but again, like lean well, on everybody involved, like creatively. I don't I don't put assign any pressure to myself mm -hmm. to produce it, but often it ends up that that's one thing I contribute. I'm with you 100. percent I think it's great, you know. And and and, and speaking of the championships, I can't, I'd be remiss without talking about that. When you took that over, I mean, 
Uh, I mean, there again, I, I have to say, in, in, from my observation, you know, the your your background came in and it flavored that whole event because you guys didn't just run a TCC. And I, from to my way of thinking, it was the first time when it really took on a new approach. Like there were events, but I don't wasn't were any of your events the same? I mean. You guys had some wild, wonderful events. Like the people loved it, and it. Um, maybe talk to us a little bit about that. Like, like, because I remember the one I would. I think it was one of the first ones, the one in Victoria there, in the park where you had, you know, the guys had to, you know, pull themselves down to the end and then drag themselves back and stop midway, and uh, and then that that work climb where you went part way. How did that work? Like, I remember there was a. You had to go. Do something part way up, go to the top, and then come down. You'll remember, but like those events were all quite unique. I think the only event that was the same was the work climb, maybe. Maybe that even was modified. But yeah, just talk you, to you us know, about that. Like go ahead. I I should lay out the foundations for how we found ourselves in that place. Uh, because initially when uh Rupert Evans and I transitioned in the organizing role for BCTCC. Right. BCTCC was operating in as a as a regional qualifier for the Pacific Northwest chapter of the ISA in the ITCC right. format, and there were there were a, a couple of things that weren't working well for me. I, I don't want to get too critical here, but I, at that stage, there wasn't really any support or infrastructure in place. And it was just like through the contributions of the community that this thing even existed. Uh, so there wasn't right. access to any kind of budget. Uh, so I was, and, and I felt very trapped in the ITCC format, just in terms of like, you need specific trees, you need a specific group of experienced knowledgeable volunteers uh, it's very demanding and and there's it also requires uh partners that have venues that can support that and that was why a lot mm -hmm. of events tend to just stay in one place every year and that doesn't right. sit well with me that was not what i came into this wanting to do like uh, when when I started, my imagination was like, let's take this around the province. It's the BC championships. Like, let's not be static in in one site. But then, like right. you, you you hit the 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 situation head on where you're having to build new relationships out with municipal foresters and and try and work through their convoluted bureaucracies to actually get yourself situated on the site, and it's. <laughs> It's all off the side of my desk. Like I'm a, I'm at, at this point in time, I'm working for Bartlett. I'm a crew leader and grinding it out yep. <laughs> and then trying to do this like in my hours at home. So, uh, and then to add to that, um, yeah, just these structural challenges in, uh, in working through the ISA to get some budget and get the insurance requirements and get gear required. Um, for those that don't know, the right. Pacific Northwest chapter of the ISA is, um, uh, we've got the province of BC, we've got Alaska, Idaho, um, Washington, Oregon. And, and Oregon. Uh, so, and probably a very similar staff and, and board structure to many chapters that are like 
in one state or one province. Uh, so it's a lot of resources to go around. So I understand why uh, it, it was difficult to make any inroads there. So all of these structures and and just being static in one situation over and over again uh, led to this um, this project really just transforming. Um, so Ryan Murphy, who I mentioned previously, he, he had quite a bit of creative involvement at this stage. And we said, like, how can we do this different? Make it, you know, sassy and and uh, and draw people <laughs> from the Pacific Northwest community, which uh, for those that don't know, uh, there's a lot of movement. Like it's a really tight community, despite being such a large chapter. Uh, uh, people are really motivated to connect and very social here. So we wanted to distinguish ourselves on the map of many tree climbing competitions that were happening in, in the in the broader region and just completely mixed it up. Like, let's look at what we have for surefire volunteers that are switched on and, and the trees we have on a site that ticks these boxes. We need a site that's relatively accessible. It's... Um, got washrooms it's got amenities it's the trees aren't like a huge distance from parking all, all that good stuff so we start from that and then build out it's like now look at the trees what do you imagine for this individual tree well, let's base an event off of this specific situation rather than coming in with the scenarios pre-cooked up and trying to force them on the trees nice and and just walk us through the events of that well, that particular, I mean, was that the first one, Ryan, the the one in Victoria? That was back in like, that was quite a while back there. No, no. Like the first so, one you did. The uh, first, Rupert, one you did. Oh. first one I did was uh, with Rupert in 2010, I want to say. Uh, first one I did okay. solo was 2011, and then I did events every year from 2011 to 2018, uh, all over the province. So that year uh, in Victoria, what... Was it? Do you remember what year that one was? Uh, do you know the one I'm talking about? It was raining. Yeah, event. I do. I believe that was 2017. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 2017. No, no. There was one previous to that, Ryan. Okay. I'm sure. Well, maybe I mixed it up. You know what? I may it's be mixing it up. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. It was 2017. No, you're right. You're right. And that was where we gave you gave one award to Rupert, and uh, there was a couple others. Wasn't it? Yeah, that's the one. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so that those one, events. Talk through those events that that particular one, just to give people an idea of how different it was. Yeah. Uh, well, going going off memory here, because uh, there's a couple I, I don't recall, but uh, th what would be the closest analog to an ITCC work climb uh, was a large Gary Oak deciduous tree um that was yeah quite a nice climb the way we set it up was uh anchors are pre-installed similar to the work climb but then we set up more stations than you can basically possibly hit in a time limit um right so kind of a race against time but it they were the bells were positioned all over so the idea was let's see if a line sort of takes shape uh, that becomes popular and can get the most bells. Uh, and, and you did see that happening to some extent. I, I would have liked to put more effort into the planning of it to try and really um, 
drive a bit more creativity. But effectively, it's that more stations. We disallowed hand saws. We just removed the whole industrial element of this and made it more of a, a pure sport uh, type approach right. to the to the just climb the tree, get to the point, and and see how many you can hit in the time frame. Um, the other weird one we did uh, at at this particular event was a traverse situation where. Yeah. You have to install, like, time starts, you whip up a ladder uh, to maybe like a four or five meter um, uh, tension static line between, I think it was probably close to 25, 30 meter span between trees, uh, totally horizontal. So time starts, you whip up the ladder, um, lanyard in, build your traverse system. And, and then it's like a hand bomb horizontally all the way to the other point. And then yeah. I'm trying to recall, I think at one point, like mid span, like you mentioned, uh, you yeah. have to install a, a system basically to tension yourself sideways to hit a, a bell station and then disconnect that yeah. hand bomb the rest of the way. Yeah. You'd see people were just yeah. ranking and, and running out of gas. Um, yeah. yeah. Cause you're in this awkward. And position. it was a little like, slow. It was a little slope, just so when you started, yeah. you could slide down. You had to pull yourself back up. Yeah, yeah. And then there was a weird one too, where there was a kind of a speed event where they had to go up to midpoint and then up higher and then down. Do you remember? I can't remember exactly, but I remember it was really cool. Um, yeah, it was I, one of the. It was just kind of like an ascent type event. Anyways, it doesn't matter. We don't need. The point is, it was so different, and I don't think well i certainly hadn't seen one quite that different before and uh and uh i was you know i wasn't i wasn't so set in my ways that i would say this what what is this event you know but but uh i think what do you think about you think there's a future for that type of thing like it hasn't been you know covid really slowed everything down but maybe i've always wondered if tree climbing events could take on a different shape and there could be more of that happening maybe this could serve as a way to inspire some people yeah. Uh, my, my approach all the way along, like since I transitioned from the ISA and this is not to knock on the ITCC events, I think there's like plenty going on as far as ITCC events in our neck of the woods. Um, there's multiple regional qualifiers plus a chapter, uh, final event. So it was, it was more like there's an opportunity here to do something fun and different. Um, and that's more what I'm interested in organizing. Uh, and I do lend my support to the ongoing ITCC uh, layout within mm-hmm. WISA um, as it sort of works into my schedule um, and completely support that. But it's that's more like uh, probably more competitive ultimately than we are, although people do get like right into it uh, with the BCTCC events that we organized while I was involved. I think maybe the next step for me is I, I'm always like looking at access and I feel like we're we're much more committed to the idea of of sport and creativity whereas like ITCC had still had like elements of work that were uh, strongly mm-hmm. embedded in it we we distanced mm-hmm. ourselves obviously you're still getting primarily arborists out to these events but it just allowed like we dropped some of the formalities and the scripts and 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 all that and and mm-hmm. opened up events to just allow people to approach the whole um, 
space a bit differently. I think moving forward, uh, and I'm, I'm talking with um, an old friend and, and climbing colleague about what we're going to do next. And, and we're very, very early, but we're just like bouncing ideas. He's involved in like uh, electronic music festivals um, and uh, yeah. and more like art installation, lights, that sort of thing. Um, and I'm like going in like still BMX mountain bike trials. Like I'm most motivated by sort of a jam format where it can be somewhat competitive, but, uh, finding a different way rather than just purely time or quantity of bells, finding a different way, like, um, and, and some of the Red Bull events in, in climbing are already doing this where it's more judged on uh, a style rather than like achieve like a quantifiable task. Um, so we're talking about maybe like more of a jam format where you just open up a space and, and new canvas might be just a couple of stations. But, but the other thing is like, how do you get people involved at the ground floor? And that's what I'm mm. always focused on. Cause ITCC had done that fairly well, but I feel like there's so much competition for space in the events. Now it's primarily people that are already in it. Um, mm -hmm. so how do we get the next, the next generation involved if they want to participate at that level, but also if they want to build community, um, and I need to do a better job of that. Uh, I haven't cracked that puzzle yet. I, that's a, I, I've been thinking about that while you've been talking and, and, uh, you know, one thing I remember that I saw very clearly that I hadn't seen before when the when the BC Open started way back and when it first began, and you know it was and it was part of Rupert. It was Rupert's kind of Rupert's passion around in the beginning when he started that, and we we threw a lot of support behind it. But what what it was was a way for people to not have to be afraid or intimidated to go to the big show. You know, it was like a way to ease into, and I think that's kind of what you're touching on. And I still think that there's like. I don't that what it grew into became less of that. It became like a it became a a respected and, and a part of a qualifying event, which again made it it brought that intimidation factor back to it, which it in the beginning didn't have. And I think there's you're absolutely right for these people that want to get their feet wet or get started and don't want to go up against the, you know, they just want to have more fun and learn and not be there in such a competitive sense to provide an atmosphere for that, I think is really admirable and, and needed. And uh, I, I wish you all the best and look forward to what you guys come up with. Um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to... Oh, sorry. What? No, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I, I think the angle I'm going to take in the next one is, is reducing the commitment um, so, so we always load up like multiple stations and kind of force people through all of them. Uh, and right. I think the next one is, is just going to be like, here's the playground. Um, and you fit into it over these couple of days, however you please. Uh, I, I think that's the next approach and, and people, uh, the community in general will be able to, I think, ease the, the newbies into it. Uh, in that space rather than I, it was just the idea of having to make that commitment of multiple events over a day. Um, and especially coming into it where you haven't 
you haven't ever seen one before, it's it's super intimidating. And, and I've seen enough people start the event and, and not make it all the way through and, and have a bit of a negative experience about it. So that, yep. that, that's going to be, when I mentioned before, just the mechanics of building an event, it, it sort of starts at all the constraints and, and the lessons learned from previous events, right? And and we yep. build off of that. So that's those are the main things I'm thinking about right now. Your, your, your competition tree and the ideas are growing and steadily changing as it ages, like all trees do. Uh, I wanted to capture a little bit, Ryan, you, you've touched on it so many times, but I'd like to just get a little bit into the the space of the human forest. And, and we always do ask people this, um, how being part of the human forest or how working with trees, how that has, you know, we've been talking a lot about as a career and it's impacted you. But, and you've touched a lot about the the softer side of things, the, the like what how you sensed uh, they really enjoyed their job, those, those, those two lady climbers in your first beginning impetus of your career. But how has, how could, or if you could articulate to us how being part of the human forest and how trees specifically has affected you personally in your, you know, your, your life as a father, as a husband, or as, as just a person? Is there a connection there that you could draw a parallel to? to trees and that and those relationships and friends and family. Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind is my, uh, you know, my wife would tease me for never being able to switch it off. <laughs> Just like always like in some <laughs> capacity, um, talking with tree people or non tree people about trees, um, and, and, <laughs> and how people engage with trees. Like the, most of the work I do now is seems to be more, in that domain of, of, I guess, communicating, um, like I, my, my area of research that I'm invested in is around, um, worker retention and recruiting. And, mm -hmm. uh, if there is a work shortage and, and we think there is, uh, what are the underlying structures feeding into that cycle? Uh, so I, I'm, thinking big about how how people uh, existing now who have already had exposure to industry are experiencing positively or negatively uh, the workplace and also noting like how lucky I was to land in those different workplaces, time and place and the people like Brian Saxon, Katrina Van Osh, um, you know, Noah Violini, uh, Rupert Evans, like all these people I ran into just, I had a, a pretty soft landing and, and like a constant learning curve that was supported, but not everybody has that. Right. And there's, there's the environment mm. that's changed that workers are recruited into. There's different challenges in society now than even, um, I, came up with and and yourselves probably came up with so it's it's a different reality and experience for them and i spent a lot of time thinking about it too much time um the other piece is like very local to me and and that is working to support people that are interested in shaping their community forest uh, and participating in it uh which also 
somewhat could support career opportunities forming, could support research opportunities forming, but there's there's still this disconnect between how uh, your your neighbors in your community see trees and and want to support or not support uh, policies or um, could be simply funding for for better outcomes for urban trees uh, and urban forests at large. So trying to to understand all the mechanics behind that is taking up a lot of my mental bandwidth um, through, through several different approaches. Like, uh, uh, and I, I think if, if I can share within my network of other professionals, any, any sort of guidance, it's around think of the sustainability of what you're trying to do and, and, uh, all the other pieces moving around you and how to put energy into that so that when your effort maybe uh, drops uh, due to other demands in your life, like you have a, a newborn or you know, you know, other a career change or anything like that, that your efforts are sustained mm-hmm. somewhat. So I'm, I'm always looking mm-hmm. at the landscape around me and the people in it, not directly at other arborists necessarily, but uh, uh, community associations, uh, making connections with council is, is boring stuff. It sounds like, but then you realize, uh, in, in conversations, maybe, uh, you know, they have some perceptions that may not be informed just because they haven't had a conversation with somebody that has that perspective. Um, and, and, and the same can be said for like, we make all sorts of assumptions about other professionals around us, uh, whether they're arborists or whether they're, uh, landscape architects or mechanics, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm just thinking like, whatever I'm trying to do, if like, if I'm not bringing all these other pieces into place, like one, I'm going to burn out and, and two, mm-hmm. my effort is like a snapshot in time. So I, mm-hmm. I'm going to the community and, and, and your forest analogy, um, that's uh, invest like first observing, like what are all the moving pieces here? What are all the systems at work and, and trying to understand them? Uh, there's so much to know. And I feel like I, I know so little. Um, and the more you focus on one area, of course you, you lose other things to memory. Um, <laughs> and have to catch back up and it's uh, there's a lot of balls in the air but like i'm really drawn to just understanding the systems that work um uh, and recognizing um I, that i that i'm not I, I have to watch my bias and and try not to be too convinced or assured as well uh but 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 yeah understanding the systems and and trying to uh support them yeah you know it, it when you're talking, it reminds me of, uh, I can't remember where I heard it specifically, but it was along the lines of, you know, when you're in any organization or any anything you're a part of, if you have, if, if and when you leave due to whatever circumstance, but if there's a void or an absence when you're gone, you didn't complete your task because part of your mission is to help someone or others be able to take so that there isn't a void left when you leave, you know, um, 
there you, you you've trained someone else to do your job before you move on to the next task because otherwise you didn't really finish your job or you didn't finish what you were meant to do there and that's kind of what i'm hearing in, in what you're saying or at least it reminded me of that you know and, and it's basically a stewardship right or a responsibility to for to create your, our responsibility in maintaining sustainability basically i, I think absolutely Absolutely. Um, I just gave a uh, presentation to a bunch of uh, Bartlett Tree experts, local office safety coordinators on this on this very subject about um, effectively as a uh, working in safety and training as an arborist. Uh, there's there's a lot of weight on your shoulders, right? Um, and often these are uh, roles where you're asked to carry on with your work duties on top of it. Um, in production. Um, and it, it's a lot of personal responsibility uh, when when you're working with complete newbies and, and trying to work them through the process to get them up to the speed where they're fairly confident and, um, and confident and, and safe and efficient and all that. Uh, but as, as a safety and training person, uh, you've got like the the record keeping side of it. You've got the inspections, the orientations, the paperwork, 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 and anything you want to do that is like proactive. It's like there's there's hardly time for it. And the more time you invest into that, uh, if it's not supported ultimately by supervisory and management level, you know that that's an mm -hmm. emotional hit for one because you recognize it as having this potential. And so we, we talked through a lot of that sort of stuff. It's just like how to kind of take care of yourself through the process, but also build capital into making things happen. Um, and the one thing I would say is like, don't be afraid to, to make those mistakes. Like that's pretty cliche, but like, you know, invest that energy, see how it didn't produce anything and how you wasted a bunch of effort yeah. effectively. But ultimately, you're still going to gain something from that. And I, I definitely right. think back to my time where I was like burning the candle at three ends, doing safety and training stuff and and really invested in some proactive things and, and trying mm -hmm. to persuade these ideas into implementation those skills made me much more persuasive in everything that came after, even if it wasn't implemented then um, and wasn't mm. adopted in the culture. Like just think of how hard it is for, you know, anything, any one person invests into the culture of an organization that it is even two employees, mm. let alone 60 or 80. Um, yeah. Think of like, all the stars that need to be in line for your investment to change the culture. And it, to, it is adopted into just the, the, the yeah. practice, uh, the day to day. That's such a hard thing. Yeah. And, and we need to be up more upfront about that. It's just like, we've got this idea that you're going to change the world. It can happen, but you got to learn all these other soft skills, as you mentioned, how to be more persuasive, right. but not only that, like, just being persuasive is dangerous, right? Like you need to, you need to do the research and, and have a community to run your ideas and test it out with uh, the user experience of the group and, and dial it in and then, and then, and persuade it to the people that are the decision makers.
Tony, you're, uh, you know, you're involved with the family business of a, you know, a sizable business, not the magnitude of Bartlett, but certainly, you know, you, and then you're involved in that. What, I mean, you've been listening to this and uh, we haven't heard a lot from you today, which is fine, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. And I imagine it must be intriguing you. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, it's family business, but my older brother started it, but my father was an arborist. So second generation, but not through the family business. Just some people don't get that, but it, I mean, even from a very, you know, early age, like my father came a forestry background into arboriculture. There was always, and I, much like Ryan, I was sort of put into the position of having good teachers. Um, I didn't have to learn the hard way, but there was always that aspect of at some point, it's going to be your job to teach somebody everything we taught you and to, and to pass that on. And that's something that I've seen recur in the arboricultural industry again and again. And um, I think it's something that kept me in the work for so long. And I think it's something that keeps a lot of people in the work so long. There's definitely that. Um, I wouldn't even want to say it's as, for, as formal as like an apprenticeship program, you know, because, you know, and a journeyman and that stuff. But there's definitely an aspect of, you know, passing on what was taught to you. And oftentimes those things aren't necessarily skills, right? Because when I think about, you know, my career as a trainer, um, really the skills I teach most often are really pretty basic. You know, you you know, basic chainsaw use, basic climbing. Sure, you occasionally get the advanced rigging or, you know, something like that, which is cool. But most of what you teach is really basic. Um, but, you know, the skills are basic, but it's that, you know, how, how do you be, you know, a good worker? You know, how do you get along with people on a job site where it can get very tense very quickly? You know, um, you know, the, almost that sort of the, the subtle, the conflict resolution, you know, when, to, when is the right time to step up and say, look, you know, I'm going to take charge of this situation and I'm not trying to be a dictator here, but we're going to do it my way or something's going to go terribly wrong. And I think those are the skills that, that Ryan's speaking about that people haven't really tried to focus on. It just sort of happened. And it's, and I see that there's the gap now is it's just not happening quite as much. And I also see as a trainer, you know, part of our job is to kind of keep the newer generation of people that are getting into industry in contact with the past, right? So that they can understand that we started on a taunt line hitch and a Blake's hitch, not that they would ever use it, right? And not that it's the best system out there, but you need to understand where you came from and have that connection to the past. And under, you know, oftentimes I get so frustrated because these, guys and girls come up with these great new ideas and you're, and you're sitting there shaking your head and I feel like a curmudgeon, but I'm like, you know, we were down that road 20 years ago, you know, like we, can you just, we, we traveled this road already and I admire you for taking the step and wanting to do something new, but trust me, you don't, you don't want to go down that road. You know, it's the, the classic repelling off the rigging line, you know, comes, comes back around every 15 years or so. It's like, Oh, you can <laughs> save a ton of time if you just repel down your pool lines. Like, yeah, we've tried that. It doesn't work so well. You know, there's there's problems <laughs> with that issue. And so, yeah, yeah, I agree. There's, you know, that that stepping into that and and seeing the other side of it and really trying to, you know, replace yourself. Um, you know, I I find now that, you know, my best days of training and teaching somebody, I actually say less than I listen more than than I speak sometimes. Um, because like I said, sometimes the skills I'm teaching are relatively basic. Um, mm -hmm. once you get them going in the flow, then, then you could just sort of facilitate and sort of nudge them in the right direction, which is, uh, where I think is, yeah, I, is the true value. 
Yeah, I, I totally. It's really interesting, right? I mean, I, I want to say I'm I'm really impressed, or I admire, you know, your your passion around retention, and and you know what I'm hearing and, and learning, understanding. I think a little bit better now that it's, you know, it's about inspiration. You know, it's it, I for many years, and it's one of the reasons I I got involved with train you know training trainers. You know, we have this saying that data doesn't matter, right? It, it's how you make people feel. And it's really bizarre because it isn't in the curriculum. You know, it, 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 but if you can impart or inspiration and, and uh, you know, inspire people to want to be different and enjoy and, if, and, 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 and that filtering through a group of people where it could have impact culture is just it's it's a slow uh, rewarding process that that requires patience understanding and uh dedication and um in and it's and it's very fickle and very can be very influenced by leadership or by someone in leadership that doesn't have the sensitivity to you know i think really what i guess if i was to use a word i think that there's sometimes a disconnect between leadership and the 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 people they lead is the humility you know and humility in the sense that you are clearly aware and understand your own limitations and your own inadequacies or dysfunction and when you know what you're capable of and your worst you're that much better to be what you're capable of at your best and you need to accept that you can be any one of those things at any time and that especially applies to leaders and when leaders exercise that and they're able to communicate that, and it's done through example, it's not really done in words, then you can start to see a culture shift. But it has to, you know, and, and that I think is a real heart of training and education. Because any one of us, I think, if we think back to people that truly taught us, they gave us that, they imparted that somehow soulfully or energetically. And it had not as much to do with the fact that they showed us how to tie a knot or cut a notch. It was how they did it. You know, and I think that's what you're touching on, Ryan. And I just encourage you to, to keep in pursuit of that because it's really, and wow, what a neat aspect to look at it from is, is retention. You know, because if you can... You know, you give if, if people want to work there so bad they don't want to leave because of it's such a great place to work, then that's how you retain them, and that's that's a that's a quite an order to to recipe. Yeah, in in very simple terms, it's it's about the the experience. Um, that that seems to be one of the underlying drivers, of course. Like, um, even the most engaged person that has all the pieces in place, you know, may, may end up uh, leaving town or having a change of heart towards the trade. And, and I'd see the frustration yeah. on, on the part of owners and uh, where, where they're making these changes at the, at the owner level, making the changes to, to improve the experience of existing personnel and still seeing the the turnover, right. and uh, I, I just gave a presentation on my research at the Ontario chapter ISA event in London uh, this winter, and I, I remember one of the uh, one of the participants in the crowd in the Q and A 
said, we're doing this, 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 and this, it's, it's still happening. And, and I've got nothing to show for it. And I just said, like, we're dealing with a wildfire and you've got a five gallon bucket. Like it's, it's systemic, it's industry wide. It's embedded in the larger workplace culture, not specifically industry specific. So right, it's, right. it's all of the things. And again, this like plays into my systems uh, approach of observation and, and just trying to identify mm. all the things that are at work against us here. Um, what is not helping us is, is people making, continuing to make statements about what is wrong uh, with the workplace right. or, or uh, with employees or with a, an entire generation of people that, that, may be gratifying or satisfying in the moment, but it's not, it's not helping the situation. Um, and, mm-hmm. and the same can be said in, in people adapting their companies to remove the human element, um, or at least reduce their exposure to it, um, with, uh, machine replacement effectively. Um, it, we're right. individualizing our, our capabilities and that's, going to gradually potentially reduce your opportunities to do creative work. Um, you may get very commodified and focused into one particular thing. Uh, fair enough if that's your approach, but you know, I encourage any, any people in a position of decision-making authority with an organization just to, to look bigger picture and look at some of the industries that are showing leadership on, on the retention issue and how they're approaching it. Uh, but uh, I, I'm, I, I spend a lot of time uh, thinking it through. And, and again, like I, uh, I, I need to build, uh, I need to build that capacity and, and, and get more people invested in it. Uh, right now, I think we're at the stage where we're still very much just frustrated by it, but it, we need to get organized now. And, and, and some regions uh, where you've got some, representation for industry are doing this. I think uh, within Canada, Ontario, through the OCAA and the ISAO, they're, they've been doing this for a long time. They get it. They've got a good foundation in place, yet they're still struggling with turnover, right? Um, I'm mm-hmm. case in point. I, I went through Humber College and uh, was well situated within the workplace. And uh, and it ends up that I moved to Victoria. See you later, Ontario. So that's a regular thing. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. you invest all this energy into a, a future Ontario employee and they take the training and away they go out west. Um, and there's there's many more like me out here. Uh, so that's, that's yeah. a deficiency within BC. Uh, they're not feeding into the pool uh, very well. We don't have a necessarily an established pathway uh, or a well-established pathway through apprenticeship, but also you've got all these businesses of different sizes treating the formative mm-hmm. experience for new arborists very differently. Uh, you'll hear owners right. say like, um, yeah, we would never send our staff to, to school because we've got a really strong in-house training program. But when you actually ask the workers, like, what's your experience? You can have vastly different experiences within the same workplace from different workers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's it's a difficult landscape from the worker perspective. Uh, it's, it's just things to keep in mind. Absolutely, yeah, no, hundred percent. Um, we we always get we get about to this time frame, Ryan, and, and uh, 
think we're we're getting close to needing to break and 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 wrap it up. Although we're ha- it, it, we're not, and that's not immediate, but soon. But Tony, it, as Ryan's been talking, um, I've been. Th- I know you you often will ask a question about um, if he. Um, about a young person getting in the industry, what their advice would be, or something to that effect. Do you you know what I mean? I'm curious what Ryan would have to say about that if, in response to your question and how you phrase it. Yeah, it's, you know, oftentimes, and I look at like my career and coming through, but, you know, if you were to give advice to somebody getting starting in this work, like they're, they're, they're in your position, you know, they're working at the golf course or whatever, and they see people climbing trees and they're like, oh yeah, that, I think I could do that. Um, what, what advice would you give them? How, how would you go about it if you could do it yet again? That's a difficult one. Uh, I think so much of it is just chance. Uh, like who's hiring at the time. Uh, yeah. When people, when people maybe approach me, there's been a few times where people have approached me through a, a, a connection maybe outside of trees, they're just like, oh, I know this guy who knows about trees and might be able to steer you in the right direction. That's, that's one thing I would really encourage. Like if you're thinking about making a start and obviously I'm preaching to the converted, um, through this, uh, this crowd, but, um, making yourself available to steer people in the right direction. So they do land in the right place at the right time, where they've got a better shot at getting, uh, some, some thorough training, good mentoring and possibly opportunities for an apprenticeship or uh, at least qualifications, good equipment, uh, steer them in the right direction. Uh, and I, I can think of, a, and this speaks to the, the company side of things too, because I'm, I'm advocating for companies where I kind of keep tabs on them and, and I'm, I'm watching, I'm always watching, like I'm you know, keeping tabs with people I know that work there, uh, and, and seeing what they're up to because they're, they're, they're on my short list. Right. And I want to make sure that when it, I, it doesn't matter who it is, I might not know them at all. I, I don't want to send them knowingly into a situation where the odds are, they're not going to have a good introductory experience into industry because we, we know what happens there. Uh, so, so make yourself available and, and steer people in that direction and, and be forthcoming with companies and saying, Hey, you know, people ask me for work. Uh, here's, here's where I'm sending them full stop. And here's why. Well, that's what I was just going to ask you, Ryan. I agree a hundred percent. And I mean, I would go through this when I was an instructor at the college, you know, who's your best student? Who's what students got the best marks, you know, employees, potential employees would ask me and I'd say, you know, the guy with the best marks isn't always going to be the best employee or the best student, you know, because I would always think about their attitude and their work ethic, you know, and what I could observe in that. How do you, what do you, what, is it that you look for? And I'm, I don't want to put you on the spot here because this could get, you know, obviously you don't want to get specific and certainly not with companies, but, you know, I know exactly what you mean, but I'm curious how you would articulate things about, like say, I wouldn't recommend here and why, and I do recommend here and why, what are those things that you, you see and observe? 
This is where I see a, a huge missed opportunity. Um, well, there's currently a missed opportunity by industry and how it's responding to this, uh, if you want to call it a crisis of retention and recruiting, is we, we have such a narrow view of what the winning formula is in a new recruit or, or somebody that has experience. Like it's a recipe that works that we just try and repeat. Um, right. and even in how we mentor people, we're trying to repeat the, the winning rest, the magic recipe, uh, drawing back to my, my BMX and mountain bike trials time, the richness within those communities is the difference. It's like people that are just competitive at the, at the highest level, like that's, mm. that's a thing, but the bulk of the community is quite creative and there's like a lot of diversity in it just with stylistically, but in the environments where people are riding bikes. Uh, and that is the richness. Mm. And, and from there, I mean, uh, 20 years ago, there was a certain recipe that worked as far as people that were getting full sponsorship payroll, like, um, and, and print attention. It, it's evolved a great deal where people that you could call quite quirky that have like real avant-garde approach to, to how they ride. Uh, it just shakes up everything and everybody's watching it and excited by it. And, and linking that to tree care, I think our, our mm. product is so standard and generic across the landscape uh, in the market. And there's like, you're, you're all competing for, for uh, a, a particular type of client. There hasn't been much adventurous work going on to see how we could change our, our business to stand out in the market. Um, I'm not going to mm. get into the mechanics because that work is hard. It requires creativity. And, I'm, <laughs> you know, you go do that yeah, work. Yeah, I know. I get it. But, but in doing that, you're going to attract a very different type of, uh, of, of skills, especially if you're offering different opportunities within the, the day to day and, uh, and allow your business to, uh, unfurl creatively that opens doors. And, and for people like me that are motivated by creativity, um, but, but have different strengths. Like I'm not a big brawny dude that can slug out, uh, big beast removals and crane jobs all day, every day. That's not, my strength right um so should i not should i not thrive in the workplace should i not have a, a long career and uh, do i not have things exactly. to contribute I, I would argue uh, quite the contrary uh, so people are coming into the program that have unique skill sets that we're not identifying we're just trying to repeat this cookie cutter uh person that has got our business to this point right that we think we yeah need so they're with yeah, the guys that like it's whoever brings in the most production, that's who gets promoted, and they end up in charge. And that's not like that's one model that is based on revenue and speed and performance. That isn't necessarily. I think that's kind of what you're that, an example of what you're saying. And and you know, I look at the the you know if that's the primary focus, and it's it can be pretty obvious that that's the focus of who gets to move into what capacity within an organization. If it's focused directly on production, let's say for an example, it, it 
it there's a lot of risk and inherent, you know, you're going to rule a lot of people out. And it may not be a place you want to encourage someone to go be part of. And, and unless you really know they're going to fit into that competitive dynamic environment. And but it can go the other way, too, where you see this often and where there is no emphasis on on any kind of performance. And, it, and then you get apathy. And and it, it's a, that I, I really appreciate what you're saying there about a balance between that and, and companies maybe having, you know, more of a of a multi-pronged approach to how they're doing their work and what what a good employee looks like based on whatever it is they're doing it's an interesting idea and uh and i think quite you know you find it somehow like i think some companies do specialize like they'll say look we're just not going to get into the bigger move we're going to specialize on ipm or we're going to do small tree pruning and and you see some diversity in that but not in the bigger companies as much it's interesting right yeah yeah, and the mechanics, like the logistics to actually pull that off is quite a difficult thing. So it's easier for us to yeah. just shelve that and stick with the program uh, than to face. <laughs> and there are risks, of course, like you got to keep the the wheels turning uh, and revenue coming in. And that's what you know. But uh, if you have the means and the opportunities, like we, we need to start taking more of these opportunities because other industries are on top of it. Uh, they know how to recruit. They know how what makes people tick, mm-hmm. um, and they their voice stands out. Like we're not being heard right now, but we're also not giving a good introductory experience to the few people that are coming in. So we're screwing that up. <laughs> if we're serious about yep. addressing our issues, like you're not, you're no longer like getting the unicorns you think are out there. They just you're going to be disappointed with everything that everyone that comes through the door. Well, you know, and it, it makes me think of about what you first talked about, you know, that you were at a co- witnessing a small company that had a, a, a couple of women working for it, which was at the time quite rare and, and still really is quite rare, but it's getting a little less. So, but I find what you're talking about with retention and experience as a new employee, particularly, frustrating for women that I've talked to that they they face even greater challenges just by biasness and you know I'm, I'm I just something popped into my head maybe that the diversity and healthiness of an organization may be judged by the amount by the by the ratio of men to women involved in the field you know because it having that diversity in personality and ability strength and brawn versus dexterity and finesse you know like there's a there i think that that's kind of what you're talking about and and you're not alienating one or the other for any particular reason it's uh been a real uh yeah i would i would say industry is doing a uh, quite a good job at promoting to women now i think the true test is going to be uh, within a workplace, how many women are uh, sticking it out for a year or two right. years? You know, getting past that like crucial five-year mark, that is that's going to be the the lagging indicator that we need to discuss, and and that's drawing attention to issues that pre-existed women being targeted in recruiting. We didn't solve the conditions that we were experiencing the turnover right. with before and and now we're just targeting a new group group to fill a gap uh, right. which is a problem 
especially when yeah, you're, yeah. you're not ad- addressing behavioral issues within the organization. Um, management, supervisor, worker level doesn't matter. Um, and and that's that's continuation of a sour experience. And I've I've got possibly one of the key reasons I'm, I'm engaged in the work I am in now is, is because uh, someone who I uh, supported in, in coaching through their development, uh, she shared some things with me about relationships or you know, negative relationships that occurred within the very workplace I was in at the time. That, mm-hmm. that drove her out forever. And right. her development was so sharp. Uh, she, she had so much to give. I thought she was going to have uh, just an amazing future. And she got uh, spit out very quickly. Uh, very sour taste in her mouth about the whole experience. It still looks back fondly on parts of it. But, but like, we need mm-hmm. to be... We need to be mindful, not just mindful, like we need to put in preventative measures to stop that from happening uh, because she would have had so much to contribute. I agree, Ren, and and it's not a, I mean, it's a story that I've heard as well. And not not only with with women, there's been some amazing young men that I've, that due to their, I don't know what specific circumstances may not be the similar, but they were negative enough that they're not even part of the industry anymore and never will be. And that's just a damn shame. And, and uh, something that I think, you know, if we're hearing about it, the the amount that we have, it's probably a lot more prevalent than we think and uh, worth paying some attention to, to bring awareness and, and to help make a difference in that way. And I, I, I think you're onto something there. Tony, what do you think about that one? Yeah, I think you make a great point in that, you know, sort of a golden rule of being a, a educator, a trainer, facilitator, whatever you want to call it, is don't expect yourself from others. And I think a lot of companies, that's exactly what they do in their hiring process, right? They're like, you know, company, a small company owner is like, okay, I got to get some more employees. And they start running around looking for themselves and they're not going to find them, you know, cause they're, they're just not there. Um, so opening that perspective up, I think could, you know, serve a lot of people. And then, like you said, when you do get that person in and, you know, build to their strengths, you know, like, uh, you know, not everybody's going to be the crane removals all day, every day, you know, humping big wood down, you know, um, I mean, one of the parts I've always loved about herbiculture was the variety of it. You know, you have to have a little bit of change up. You have to have a, a wide skill set. But, you know, at this point in my career, if I never cut another tree down, I'd be fine with it. I'll prune all day, yeah. you know, like way more satisfying now. Um, and there was a time mm-hmm. in my career where I'm like, oh, yeah, just a big removal. This is going to be awesome. I can't. This is going to be a good challenge physically, mentally, you know. But now I'm like, ah, I'll prune dogwoods. Yep. All about them. I love those things. Azalea bushes. I'm good with them. Yeah. But uh, and that. But yeah, that. to open that up and to and to not expect yourself from from other people is good advice in general. And I think it's really good when you're looking to explain to to recruit and to bring people into the industry and have them you know get that positive um, 
you know, experience. I think some of it too, I've seen, because we've had those experiences here with the family company bringing people. And some people come in a little bit disillusioned, right? Everybody wants to be an arborist when it's sunny and 70, you know, and you're working on a beautiful white oak tree on the 15th green of a world famous, you know, golf club. Um, nobody wants to be an arborist when it's snowy and rainy sideways. And so some people come in and get a little disillusioned. There's some romanticism there and they last a year or two and then they kind of, they kind of drift out or drift into other aspects of it. Um, that can be a little more seasonal. I think there's a lot to be, I think, I think there's a lot to be said though, um, about the, the mood within a company on the bad days and how, how it's handled. Like that, that's a good temperature check of, of Mm. where, where the environment sits socially within your workplace. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, uh, it's, you know, hard times don't build character, they show character, right? Um, you shouldn't be building character on the shitty days. <laughs> you're not going to build good, you're going to build shitty character, right? Um, but it is a good, and, and to see that and to deal with that and to, to respond to that, to understand them. Yeah, it's go with the ebb and flow of it too, really. You know, it's like I said, it just, you know, the, I think the days of the, you know, the, the, the oak men and the uke men, or yoke people and yoke people to be non-sexist about it will always exist. You know, that stereotype always exists, but I think somewhere along the line, there's another, I don't know what the tree species is for it. You know, I don't know what you'd call them, but I think somewhere along the line, there's, there's something in between there. Um, that is, that is, I think companies need to start looking for and identifying to solve some of their, their recruitment and retention. Well, problems. you know, I, I think it's, I think it's just embracing the diversity, you know, if you, and you know, we keep, Coming back to this human force analogy, but a force is full of understory, overstory, you know, ground cover and underground connections that, you know, of the fungus. Like you think of the amount of organisms and the, the difference each or like the, the strength of one is very different than the strength of another and their, their function and their functionality and their purpose within the collective. You know, that's we need to embrace like when you're looking for company owners, looking for people to rep- that are just like them, you're, you're, you're creating a mono stand, right. You know, and it, it's, it's not a sustainable model. And, and uh, yeah, there's, you know, embracing that diversity and not only just embracing it, but actually seeing the benefit of it, that it's so vital. You know, it's, it's not, it's not a nice to have, it's not something to shoot for. It's the way to sustain you know, and, and, and even it, 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 it's the way it always is. Even if you think you have a mono stand, if you're actually surviving in this human forest, you, you have those diversities among you. You have to, or it doesn't work. <laughs> so it's uh, the whole resistance is futile. Like, uh, <laughs> but uh, embracing it just allows it to be that much to, for it to flourish rather than to struggle. Well, yeah. man, that's been a, fascinating fascinating uh session and i'm just really encouraged and and really appreciate your your thoughts and feedback and your time ryan for sharing this with us and uh you know i I encourage you to listen to it yourself it's weird saying it but there's something about going back and listening to your own session i've done it a few times and uh i've been on other podcasts and it's really cool and and yours will be coming out well i'll just uh I'll, i'll just Thank you for your time right now, and uh, and uh, we can we can uh, sign off. But Ryan, thank you very much. Oh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And we You're do welcome. reserve the right to have guests on again and again and again. <laughs> oh, nice. So, yeah. Great. I'd, have, Great. I'd be happy to come back. We'll, we'll, 
when we talk to when we find when we run out of people to talk to, we'll just start going through the list again. Yeah. People stop talking to us. 